you're listening to our very special live recording of What in the NDIS Now? We had a great afternoon and really enjoyed our first attempt at holding a live event. We have taken plenty of lessons and look forward to making our next live recording an even better experience. Sam and I could not have held this event without the wonderful Karen Lorenzon, the pink-haired lady herself, the wizard behind the juggernaut that is ConnectFest. We are so thankful she could join us, becoming our very first repeat guest and answering some great questions from our wonderful crowd. Karen's networking events are amazing and as a support coordinator, they have been absolutely vital in allowing me to meet so many wonderful and unique providers doing their thing in the NDIS space. If you are looking to connect with other providers or gain an important connection with a support coordinator, such as myself, then ConnectFest is the event to attend. ConnectFest is simply the best networking opportunity in this field and I have met some of the most important contacts I have at Karen's events in the past, including my co-host Sam Rosenbaum. There are plenty of opportunities throughout 2024 to come along to ConnectFest events all over Australia. ConnectFest will be held in Logan on the 2nd of February, which is a day event, and I will be at that one. And then there is a Gold Coast event on the 16th of February, which is a nighttime one, which I'm really excited about. Karen is then in Sydney for four events in two days on the 20th and the 21st of February. And there are plenty more coming up, including some regional events. For everything you need to know about all upcoming events this year, you should give ConnectFest a follow on Facebook, Instagram or LinkedIn or go to connectfest.com.au. While you're there, be sure to check out the sponsorships and packages Karen offers, which will do wonders to get you and your business out there. Once again, thank you, Karen, for making this live episode possible and a huge, huge thank you to all of you who attended. We had such a great time and it was a fantastic turnout. Now, on with the podcast. Um, we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we podcast, whose stories have been told for thousands of years. Today, we are recording live from Mianjin on the land of the Jagera peoples. We pay our respects to elders past and present who may be listening. Sovereignty was never ceded. A quick note before we get started that there will be swearing in this episode. <laughs> if you don't like swearing, this might not be the episode for you. You have been warned. <laughs> You're listening to What in the NDIS Now, a podcast where I, Hannah Redford, and my friend Sam Rosenbaum interview participants, providers about all things NDIS. 
Today, we are coming to you live from Forest Lake Community Hall, and we are answering questions from our audience. As you came in today, you were able to submit questions for any of our panellists. You also get to put a face to the voice. You have been listening in your ears. I know you've all been confused about which voice is Hannah and which voice is Sam, so hopefully we can clear that up for you today. <laughs> so let's get to who we are. Starting with me, I'm Hannah, and I have been in the disability sector for over 10 years, but my daughter is 18, so really 18 years. And I have been a support coordinator for five years. I founded Tulip Coordination in 2021 to specialise in supporting the LGBTIQ plus community and in particular transgender participants who often don't have people around them who understand what is happening for them. I have three amazing children, um, which all three of them are here today. Um, two of them are, ha are on the NDIS, so I know what it's like to be a participant. I all have also trained support coordinators and provide supervision and mentoring to support coordinators around Australia. This is Sam, my awesome co-host. He is an NDIS... NDIS compliance specialist with a wealth of knowledge of the sector and business operations. He is the principal consultant for Rosenbaum Consulting, a boutique NDIS provider consultancy firm, and the co-founder of All Access Pass, AAP. AAP provides the support and facilities to enable the participation of people with disabilities at, event, at events and festivals around Australia. He is passionate about continuous improvement in the NDIS sector, driven by his lived experience as a carer and being neurodivergent himself. Please welcome Sam. Introducing our very special guest, because I've got to leave the best for last. The one and only, the pink-haired lady herself, the networking queen, it's Karen Lorenzon. She has over 20 years experience in the disability field. She is an amazing mother to her autistic son and ADHD herself. These experiences have given her a unique perspective and the ability to think outside the box. Her particular expertise lies in networking, effectively conveying your narrative to your target audience, creating brand awareness, fostering business growth and utilising social media marketing. So please welcome Karen. Hi, Sam. How are you going? I am very excited, Hannah. Yeah. Very excited. Have you been doing anything fun recently? Um, sweltering in the Queensland summer. Oh, my goodness. Humidity. It's so humid. <laughs> it's so awful. All right. Let's get to some fun questions. Okay. First up, Hannah. 
me questions. I don't know anything. <laughs> um, what would you change if you were in charge of the NDIS? Uh, <laughs> um, one or two things. Um, so, obviously, we predominantly ask this question at the end of every episode, and part of why we do that is because I love this question, and so many different perspectives come to it. Um, the biggest, biggest thing I would change is I would get rid of every single category, and I would just give the amount of funding that someone, you know, because it says at the top of a plan, you've got, you know, 250,000 or whatever it is, but that's not actually true because it's actually broken down into a bunch of different categories. Scrap the categories, just say you've got 250,000 and the person decide, do I need 200,000 with my physio or do I need 200,000 with my supports and maybe then tomorrow I actually need more OT, having it specified to categories means that there's no flexibility in your, in, to pay for more of this or more of that and it is one of the biggest banes of my existence because often we're going for review just because one category is depleted but the other one has heaps of money in it and you're like, well, this would be simple if I could just if it was all flexible and you got rid of the categories, this would be simple. The other reason why I think we should get rid of categories is because for NDIS participants, it's super confusing and it's needlessly confusing. So much of my time is spent explaining to participants what each of the categories mean and what they can buy with that category. And it's time that could be better spent implementing that support, the supports they need rather than constantly going, no, you can't do that because there's not quite enough money in this little category or the rules of that category don't quite help you do this other thing because it's, it's silly. <laughs> so that's my answer to that question. <laughs> Hopefully that made sense. Sam. Exciting. Your turn. <laughs> What's your take on the NDIS review recommendations on unregistered providers and how do you think it would impact on service delivery if fully implemented? So this is one of the most divisive hot topics <laughs> in the sector at this current point in time. Uh, when Bill Shorten and the review was released and he brought this out and the, very, the comments were very much around, let's get uh, your lawnmowers registered and everyone's going to be registered and it's going to be simplified. What that simplified process looks like, we don't know yet. Um, and there's also quite a lot of very valid commentary opposing it. So Dr George, I always get his name wrong, but how... Hell. Dr. George. <laughs> Sorry, George. I can't say your name properly. Um, anyway, he's, he uses um, 
independent support workers. And he is very, and validly so, concerned that if this recommendation does come into full, that it's going to restrict pe uh, people's choice and control to, con to decide who they have in their home, who they have to support them, and how. Which, as providers, commonly, uh, big providers historically, have been very restrictive, limiting in terms of actually flowing that choice of control through to their participants. It's very much we set a framework on how we're going to do it. We're going to try and engage with participants as much as we can. We're going to work with them. But it becomes, at the end of the day, very streamlined, systematic processes. And as a business consultant, streamlining processes is really important because you're going to have intake processes. You need to have standardised processes. So when you bring new stuff on that you train. But unfortunately, that effect also means that you are removing some choice and control and some ownership of how that individual gets to receive the supports that they're asking you to provide. It's still their supports, it's not your supports providing to them. Ultimately, it needs... If the sector had a change of mindset around how we did this, I don't think we would be in this problem. There, on the opposite side of hand, there is some really concerning elements around how um, uh, dignity and how risk is managed in the unregistered market. Unfortunately, I do work with a lot of providers, small providers come to me and go, hey, can you come help me with this? And within the first 15 minutes, I really notice that they don't understand what the hell they're doing. <laughs> and it is really scary, especially when they try and go, I want to work with high care needs. I want to work with high care psychosocial participants. And this is what I want to do. But ultimately, I've seen, worked with some providers that don't actually look at getting their staff mental health training. They don't actually identify what the history of the staff that they're employing. Unfortunately, recently we've seen some very um, bad examples from registered providers as well as non-registered providers uh, where we've had deaths of participants because of staff negligence. And this is kind of where the review and Bruce Bonhady and Lisa Paul was coming from, as going, we need to try and mitigate this risk, mitigate the impact of participants. And at the same time, us as taxpayers don't want to be forking out $34 million a year for unsafe supports. That's not what we, we pay our taxes for, for a hoo-ha of a market, but that's kind of where we're coming to at this point in time. So the effect of implementing it means that things need to change. At the start of the year, I made a uh, LinkedIn post where I was like, we need to change our thinking and we need to change the way we do it. I fundamentally believe that. Will registration solve this problem? Most likely not. Will it help to support, potentially, what I would really like to see is the implementation of the recommendation from the Disability Royal Commission which was in to implement a disability workers screening, or sorry, a disability worker registration or practitioner registration. And that takes the APRA model and puts it to disability support workers. So the onus is more on our employees, the independent support workers that participants engage with to ensure that they know what they're doing. And yes, there is a concern that they might start, independents might start exiting the market if we go to registered. I'm not worried about that because the, the really good staff and independents in the market right now have qualifications, 
have experience that if this system did get brought in, that they would be able to transfer those skills and become registered or enrol as a disability, uh, registered disability support worker. And at the end of the day, that means there's more onus on them to understand disabilities. Because right now, I don't have to understand anything about anyone or any type of disability to become a support worker. And quite frankly, that is a real scary thing. Because mm -hmm. Dr George is very smart. He's got uh, doctorates. He's very intelligent on multi lots of boards and been in the sector for a very long time. He knows what he's looking for. He knows how to interview and he knows how to screen. The reality is a lot of participants, unfortunately, don't mm -hmm. have that. But if we can make a, uh, get a system where it supports both Dr George to employ the staff in the way that he wants to, but at the same time ensure that star, uh, participants that don't have that same knowledge or savviness are protected as well. And that, can't, and that cannot be a bad thing. They just need to make it cheap enough. Because yeah, right yeah. now, <laughs> it's too expensive. Yeah. And I don't want to get registered because it's so expensive. It is. Yeah. And auditing companies out there are rewarding it. Yeah. And also, That's don't true. make it be two years or plus two plus years to yeah. actually get registered. Yeah. Yeah. So the registration process, and it has been acknowledged in the disability, in the, in the NDIS review, as well as the Royal Commission, that the registration and auditing process is flawed as it stands. The practice standards are flawed. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the, I think I've spoken this about several times on the podcast, but quality management framework has a requirement of owners and management mm -hmm. to have a commitment to quality. <laughs> the NDIS practice standards don't. Mm. There's governance, there's sort of suitability, there's a lot of hoo-ha, but it, auditors don't ask owners questions and go, do you know this? Do you know, work their way into it. So I just want to ask you, if registration is too expensive, what about something like um, mandatory trainings? Can you give mandatory training? Yeah, so mm. um, for those that are not in the audience, the question was, can we look at bringing in mandatory training to adjust or counteract the requirement around auditing. And that kind of goes to the point around having a the disability workers registration system mm -hmm. because that, like APRA, APRA, there's mandatory CP, uh, continuous... Uh, Training. Yeah, yeah, professional de development. That has yeah. to be done and you've got to have certain points and coming to meetings like this can be registered as CP, CPD points, uh, going to expos, going to first aid training, going to specialised disability stuff. That's all been really strongly recommended within the disability, disability support worker registration scheme. Uh, for anyone that's really interested in looking more at this model, there is a, a voluntary system in Victoria that has a lot of this already set up and it is really well done. The problem is it's voluntary. Yeah. So until like mandatory requirements come in, people are still going to opt for the not. Mm. They'll go the easy option. Which is, yeah, unfortunate in that it does mind. happen. Yeah. <laughs> so I hope that answers the question. It's a very broad one on that one. Awesome. Thanks, Sam. So Karen. Oh. Awesome. <laughs> this is one of our favourite questions. Oh, okay. I'm How ready. do you find clients <laughs> to start a business? Which suburbs more likely in demand? How to get in contact with support coordinators? I won't say the thoughts that are in my head. Um, 
<laughs> you get Karen to wave her magic wand. Yeah. yeah, I'll get my magic wand. I'll just, you know, grab a van and then be, hello, come here. Um, no, I won't do that. That's inappropriate. <laughs> a white, van. <laughs> that probably won't be the best way to do it. No, guys, it, it's, it's not about, you've got to think about these people, like, we're all human beings. So clients are human beings. So when you say to me, how can I get clients? That kind of pisses me off. I'm like, they are human beings. They are my son. You know, it's not about that. It's, to me, it's about, I meet lots of providers and I say to them, you need to have a niche. You need to, I want to know what makes you tick. What's your story? Why would I pick you out of all the, you know, I feel like it's not millions. I don't think it's millions. <laughs> The amount of providers that are out there, when I meet someone and I go, cool, you know what you're doing and, you have, and you're passionate about what you're doing, it's the people will come instead of going, how do I get clients? Like, oh, I had a provider actually, say, he, he, he said, I just want them to ring me. And I went, oh, that's nice. <laughs> um, don't we all? <laughs> don't we all want that? Um, I don't think there's a, in regards to suburbs, I don't think there is a... You know, I, I couldn't say to you, come to Forest Lake and you'll find them all, or go to Kabulcha. Um, it's about figuring out, okay, you find out your niche, and you say it's, um, say you really want to work with acquired, people who have acquired brain injuries. Connect with, provide, connect with businesses that are maybe even outside the NDIS space and talk to them about those type of participants and bring along your experience and your knowledge to them and say, this is who I can assist and this is what I can do. This is what I can bring to the party instead of going, oh, well, I'll go to Kabucha and I'll find all the people in the world there. Um, it's not about that. And it's also you have to find the right people for you. If, you, if a provider says to me, Biggest ick, I will walk away. It's like a red flag. Um, I help everyone. I'm like, you probably don't do it that well. Because for me, especially being a mother and also for myself having ADHD, my son being autistic, if someone says to me that they can support him and understand autism, I'm like, cool. I will... As your mum, you kind of grill them a little bit and you're like, okay, well, do you know what this is? Do you know what red zones are? Do you know what green zones are? Do you know what a person is when they get heightened? If they cannot answer three simple questions, they don't understand autism. They can't help my son. So it's about more, to me, figure out your niche, figure out what... And also, if you, if you own a business, do the things you love. Don't do the things you hate. Because, you know, even if you hire someone... They'll get sick. They'll go on holidays. You'll have to do the things that you don't love to do. So it's really important to put yourself out there, share the things that you love to do, have it as a niche, and, yeah, don't, don't be like... Um, the only other thing that I can say to you in regards to suburbs-wise is to actually have a look... I can't remember which site it's on, um, but there's a... The NDIS data site. Yeah, so it has the stats. I don't know if you guys have seen the stats where it says in certain areas there's... It's not... It's more how much participants receive funding for. Um, I would also, if you're thinking about expanding, don't expand. If you're in Brizzy, don't expand, say, to Melbourne. Think about the regional areas. They are... Screaming out for um, good providers because, unfortunately, in some regional areas, it's just providers that are been there forever and they just... They've kind of lost their way. Um, but, yeah. 
hope that answers the question. <laughs> I love that you mentioned regional areas. Yeah, I love regional. Yeah, like, I was do talking it. to someone about Toowoomba just the other day yeah. and I was explaining there's so few services yeah. out there. Please go out yes. there. Especially Allied Health. Allied Health is a big... If you are in Allied Health and you want to expand, go regional. Uh, it's... I know providers that have gone regional and even as support coordinators they've gone regional and they are booked out. It's just about showcasing. It may not be the most cost effective, I guess, in that beginning part, but if you, if you do it, you know, say you go once a month or every two months and you book yourself out, that's going to, but it's also you're going to be helping these people who are regional that for, especially like if you think about it for an OT, say a functional assessment, They'll come out, do a functional assessment, and that's it. But then the poor person, they need more OT or a psychologist. They need more support. You know, it's just, it's sad because they then have to travel a very long distance. They should not be disadvantaged because they, they, yes, they've made, maybe it's not they've made the choice to live in a regional town. Maybe it's because of families or whatever the reason is they shouldn't be disadvantaged. Yeah, we had a very, we've done a, a fair bit of pre-recording for this year, been super productive. Um, but one of our episodes that we've got coming out is with an OT, Katie, from Sydney, and we go fantastically in depth into regional and how to get, how she sort of stepped out into that. So keep your eye out for that if you're interested more. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Love that. What they said. <laughs> uh, Hannah. <clears throat> Do you think the NDIS will ever recognise what support coordinators really do? <laughs> no. <laughs> Question is. <laughs> done and done. <laughs> um, I don't think they ever have. I think this hmm. is proven by the fact that they have never brought out a support coordination framework. They brought out a plan manager's framework. They brought out frameworks for everybody else but support coordinators. So they never told us what in the frick they actually wanted us to do. And that is why every single support coordinator does something different and does support coordination differently because all of us are making it up and making up what is support coordination based on our experience and what we've been told. And so it's... Um, and then they never really take us seriously what we say anyway. <laughs> um, the other thing is, I think, though, that support coordinators fulfil a really vital role that there really isn't um, in the rest of the NDIS or any of the proposals of heading to navigators. The uh, idea of navigators, as I understand it, as it's been proposed, but who knows, <laughs> is that they've got six different navigators to be specialised. Now, my concern is that what if you're complex, as most of our participants are, and you then do you get three different navigators for three different issues that you've got? Like, how does that 
actually work and it mm. feels like no one's thought this through because right now, as a support coordinator, I can be across someone's entire life. But, you know, it's so it, so it concerns me that they're going to effectively silo what's, what was support coordination. And I think that it will go badly and I think they will realise very quickly and then they will turn around and go, oops. <laughs> That's a big oopsie-daisy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, as they did with, like, the independent assessments where they very quickly turned around and gone, oh, actually, <laughs> we're not going to do that. Um, I think that will be the same for navigators because I just foresee it being a shit show. So, yeah. And I think the fact that they have even thought of bringing in navigators proves that they don't think that support coordinators do a good enough job. And I think that the reason that they don't think support coordinators do a good enough job is because they didn't give us a framework. So they can get stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to swear, but then I just um, I'll save that for later. <laughs> and it gets more heated. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, back to you. Um, we talked, this is sort of going on your question before. Yep. So we talked a little bit about um, re everyone getting registered. What are the level, there's going to be, they're thinking of different levels of registration. Do you know what they look like? Look, I have sort of dived into it, but based on the recommendations around changing the um, implementing the Human Rights or the Human Rights Act and putting a lot more legislation in, bringing in changes to the practice standards, bringing in changes to systems altogether. I think even the reviews don't quite know how it's going to work. And what I've said, kind of with the navigators, I actually have a I'm kind of excited by the idea of navigators, not so much of the impacts that it, the flow and effects that Hannah's talked about, but more of the opportunities that it presents for individuals that don't have NDIS, that don't have any support and don't know where the fudge to go. That is, I, I've had uh, partners in my past that I've tried to connect up and get in, into systems and I've had to be that support coordinator for them because they haven't had anyone and I can't get them into a social worker because mm. Centrelink got a backlog left, right and centre. I can't get them a, a, a um, autistic review or a diagnosis mm. because it's a $3,000 entry sort of cost associated with that. Having a navigator in the function that kind of is described where it's open to more people with a disability, not just those with an NDIS plan, does make some excitement to me. But going back to the question around the registration tiers, I think it's too early to really mm. ascertain how that's going to work because there's too many more questions that the review has posed and too many dependencies that have to be put in place before that's got to happen. Um, so I think it'd be too much to jump down into that space just yet because the basics that's in the NDIS review is not quite solid enough and there's too many more questions that have 
prerequisites to happen first and state governments are involved in this process. <laughs> and we're open for changes in the, over, uh, several states are changing uh, going into election very soon. We're coming up into a federal election very soon as well. I'm just, yeah, I don't want to necessarily answer that one because I reckon it's going to change rapidly and mm. be a very evolving sort of step. So I'm kind of like more interested in some of those prerequisites that need to happen in the lead up that will set the foundations for anything that happens moving to registration type 2.0. Sorry if I haven't quite answered that question, <laughs> but I, yeah, I just don't think there's too, there's, it's too, too many variables at this point in time to say for sure that yes, it's going to be this what's in the review, because I'm very doubtful that it will be. So I'm going to go to this question because it kind of flows on from that. Um, do we foresee the role of support coordinators becoming obsolete with the recent NDIS review and the implementation of navigators? What is your business, my personal business plan? Um, the answer to that is really that I'm waiting and watching the space. I don't have a plan right now because I think that we don't actually know what's going to happen just yet. There's not enough information, there's not enough responses from the government. It's, it's too hard to plan on too many unknowns. Um, if it does end up moving to navigators and I would absolutely tender and try and go down that road. I think it sounds like the tender process for navigators will exclude sole traders or, I mean, not that I'm a sole trader as such, but um, I think it excludes smaller support coordination companies and will end up being with the big guys of like Carers Queensland and the Catholic Care and Anglicare type people. I think that's another reason why I'm quite concerned about the navigator role because right now I'm able to go out into people's homes and face to face talk to them and write all over their plan and explain things to them. And I'm concerned that the navigator role going to people part of a big company will mean that they will be in an office somewhere and become very detached from the people they're supposed to be working with. Um, so that's more on... <laughs> that concern. And I think that people will feel just like a number instead of actually a human being if it goes that way. There's a good episode that we've got coming out as well. I, lo I love how many episodes <laughs> we've got we've recorded. It's been a great run. Um, plug. Who, does the, who did the, the podcast last month? Anna. No. The, the gentleman. Uh, Coast. Simon. Yeah, so we've got a uh, Simon who is currently working in the therapy space and, um, as a counsellor, but he also is a previously an LAC. And he left that sort of space because of the, when it went very much uh, away from person-centric and having in face-to-face -face meetings through COVID, he had to leave because of the, it was draining. 
Yeah. And it does have that, that same sort of feel. Though Hannah and I have been having lots of conversations around navigators and the disparity between how we can sort of work flexibly right now versus what that framework may look like. And I reckon there's still going to, there has, will still be some sort of function that support coordinators will still need to feel that navigators can't do because of the framework set out. Hmm. So I don't know if the word is obsolete. I think you'll see something come back eventually after navigators because I, I don't think navigators, I'm pretty sure navigators is going to happen. But what I think may happen is you'll see a deflux in the support coordination space then the government realising how much of a big problem they've kind of just tailed themselves into a very strict framework and then a recreation of that case management base. Hmm. And they'll get a framework before the before <laughs> support coordinators that have been here for 10 years. And I tried to add to that. I was a senior, I was myself at Paris, and um, there was this, they wanted support coordination to support us because we were all of a sudden building plans and we were actually in hired to do that kind of navigating community linking to services and then it changed. And then so for me, the navigator we would turn to support coordinators to link to community. Yeah. So to then take that away and have the navigators do that, I'm struggling to see how that would flow for people because mm -hmm. people in the community have such trust in what they know and build the rapport with people like yourself. Yeah. So to now take that back into more of a corporate world, I I just don't know how that's going to yeah. Yeah. Smoothly. That's, yeah. That's yeah. exactly our concern. Well, my concern. <laughs> Sam, should staff support? <laughs> should funding to train support staff be be provided by the NDIS? No, but it should be provided by a disability support worker registration scheme. I have been beating this drum for as long as I can remember. And there are some really good submissions by organisations for the Disability Royal Commission around this framework, as well as cross-skilling um, cross and being able to move qualifications. So a lot of providers in the room and at, at home listening have got standard sort of frameworks around human rights have got risk management sort of frameworks and understanding around choice and control. This is all very standardised. It might be done in a book, might be done in a different uh, in-person training, might be a video, depending on the organisation. But it's all very the same. So where the, uh, the disability support worker registration scheme can work is they do all this basic training. You'll still be, have the ability as organisations to train specific. So how you do your onboarding, where that manual sits, where this form sits, how to go to, to your first aid officer. That also all need to be in-house. But there's lots of things that can be done on a bigger national scale. We've got the orientation workers module and the rest of the modules there. That's the starting basis of it. So they just need to sort of be able to bring in more of this and have it tied into your registration scheme. I know there's still concerns around making everyone go registered. Is it going to stop people here? But if I asked everyone in the room now to raise their hand if they thought that they would not go get registered for a disability worker screening, I'm pretty sure no one would raise their hand right now and no one at home would be thinking otherwise mm. because it's, you're in the industry right now. The Victorian framework has very simplistic measures to, to explain that you've been in the sector, this is your experience, this is what you've been working for, these are my qualifications. You get your registration and it starts flowing in. It is 
a fantastic thing that needs to happen to ensure that quality. Because at the end of the day, we're employing, as, as employers, as providers, we bring in people into our, um, our organisation yeah. that then we're taking into people's lives and homes and expecting them to be able to do their job. It is very costly as providers to ensure that quality, ensure that understanding. And then at the end of the day, if they don't do it, we're the ones that bear the price. We're yeah. the ones that lose registrations. At directors get fines, people go to jail. Yeah. There's lots of go stuff. But at the court. end of the day, <laughs> there's not as much onus mm. on the worker as there is the provider. Yeah. But they're the ones that are doing it. So if they don't have that accountability other than potentially losing their job and going to another, work, another employer, mm. but we're left high and dry dealing with massive amounts of legal challenges, NDIS, loss of registration, banning orders because of a, wor a worker's decision to go to sleep on the job, be on the phone, <laughs> not talking about anything that's recently been in the... In the, in the, in the, in the, in the news. Yeah, that's the word. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yes, I think it is very important that we add it like, multi-train, multi-skilled yeah. because then... You're not spending your money, your time in skilling, upskilling staff for them to go to somewhere else, but at the same time, they can't necessarily chance take that skills with them. Whereas, in, if it was a national framework that they sort of it was done it from a, a regulatory point, that everyone has the same sort of modules, there's options for learning more. It also means that it would be more opportunity to have training and understanding around specific disability types which is not there in the current Cert 3s, yeah. diplomas, masters even. They're, they're very broad spectrum. There's not much specificness to it. And it's not very tailored for individual support where this bringing in this kind of scheme would start to provide the framework, the training, the understanding to get that in place. Cool. <laughs> Do you want to come talk at the mic so that people, it actually gets recorded? <laughs> people at home, Jason. Go, Jason. I'm going to have to stoop. Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just a follow-up question with that. Most, um, uh, for example, in different industry, you actually upskill yourself. It's not a broad spectrum. So why should the NDIS do that? Because it's for vulnerable people. Oh, you're, you wouldn't go to a nurse that didn't have a registration. That's true. But a nurse have insurance to cover themselves. Support workers ha are covered by our, in our insurance. But at the same time, if, we're we, if we want to do as business owners, if we want our staff to understand very specific disability types. And let's take all access pass, for example, because we're looking at high care needs, we're looking at psychosocial participants, mm. and we're working in high numbers, areas, in public spaces. Some of the events we're looking at going to have 30,000 people coming to them. And we're thinking of bringing people with psychosocial or uh, social anxiety to these. So we need a staff that know intricate details of how to de-escalate. If we're, if we're taking Karen's son when he turns 18, when he turns 18... <laughs> um, He's only nine, these, so we've got a little bit of time. We need <laughs> our Mine's staff. Mine's 18. Yeah, you can use mine. We, we need... <laughs> My question is more, why shouldn't 
the organization take more responsibility to upskilling their own people? Why should it be a blanket? Because you use nursing as, a, as an example. A hospital is not going to go out there and upskill their nursing staff. They're going no, to have I, the I, expectation that a nurse will come in with that qualification. They may upskill to a higher level, but they will have a baseline qualification coming in. So why shouldn't it be as well? So I would say as well with that, that say with nurses, they all do come in with a baseline of knowledge. Yeah. And right now, support not every they, support worker comes in with a baseline of knowledge that you can rely on. And so what Sam is trying to say is that the government could implement a baseline and so you can go, we know that every single person who is mm. saying they're a support worker has this same baseline of knowledge. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. And it doesn't have to be a Cert 3. Yeah. There, there does <laughs> do need to be... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, mechanisms to ensure that the staff have a basic understanding, yeah. have first aid sort of training, uh, understanding of certain things, but then you can specific and tailor it. Um, and it starts probably starting to go outside of the question scope. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking of forgetting actually what it was. <laughs> um, but yeah, it pre presents quite a lot of opportunity to ensure that we can cross, bring staff over. If you're looking at onboarding staff and rather than having to go through the intricates of every single manual policy sort of overarching principle, they've already got that. If, you're, mm. if your staff is exiting as well, they're, they're going out with that kind yeah. of basic knowledge. And ultimately, if we can find a way that we can lessen our overhead costs for running training, will mean that we can actually do our jobs a lot more effectively and also then puts more of the onus on the staff to go home, open a textbook, open a piece of literature, open some sort of journal and start getting information themselves. Because I, the information and the knowledge that I've held, I haven't been in a classroom for this. There is no classroom that can bring you in the intricacies of NDIS compliance and also the overlapping intersectionalities of everything else that we kind of mm -hmm. deal with. That has to, that's self-taught. That's a earning for knowledge yeah. and a love and passion for this sector that has driven me to find out every yeah. detail, find out the dots, the I's, the T's crossed, how everything kind of interacts and where the nuts and bolts of um, every legislation piece kind of overlaps. But that's, how the, that's one of the benefits of how my mind and brain sort of works and not everyone does that. But if it was enforced or there was more requirements on every staff member doing that would have less staff that go home and go, hey, I was just working with Bob and it was really, really good <laughs> and I just took him to his doctor and he had to go get this medication, this medication. Oh, and this is the, like, it was just around the corner from this location. And it's really scary, I think, you know, we've, we've seen it that, you know, people like, well, support workers have started talking about participants and their names and about a diagnosis at a cafe. And you're sitting there and you're like, excuse me? Like, if yeah. someone said that about my son, I'd be like, oh, mama bear would come out. You wouldn't want to see that. Um, but I just think it comes down to being, you know, what I said before about, you know, having, the, having a, a support worker with the right skills because at the end of the day, if someone, say they have psychosocial, that they want someone who will understand what they're going through. Like, they won't understand as in they, you know, I, you know, I know how you feel. Never say that. Um, but, like, you get it to a point where you can actually support that person and give them great support instead of being like, 
why is Frank doing that? That's a bit odd. And like judging that poor person that they just need someone who actually gives a crap and will support them the right way. Yeah. I think the original question being about who, like essentially who should fund training mm. for support workers, one of the things I will say is that I think there is or should be some scope for a chunk in people who are quite complex. Yes. Because there are times when you specifically need to train everyone on that specific person. And in that case, yes, I think having a chunk of training money in the individual's plan would be useful in that circumstance. As long as everyone first has a baseline of knowledge, yeah. we can then move them on to the, the more um, individualised bit. Yeah, good point. Yeah, to wrap that up. Yeah. Do you come over to the... <laughs> can I play devil's advocate quickly? Yes. Um, and obviously, this is, I completely agree with the stance that you guys are taking. But if you're introducing a baseline model for, for support workers that have to train, what happens when you bring in this model and support workers suddenly don't want to do it and they start flocking off to other industries? Because obviously we're looking at my aged care home care package, they also have support workers that don't need to upskill mm -hmm. and they have significantly less high risk uh, clients and, and participants. So if we introduce this model where we're having compulsory training for everyone and now you're seeing an exodus of people who don't want to do the high risk training because it costs too much, it's too annoying, it's too lengthy, I can't pass it, it's a pass fail or whatever it is, and they start leaving the industry, what are you going to do then? I, I think that it's like, well, that means it weeds out the crap ones. Like, that they don't want to... Like, to me, it's like anything. If you really love what you do, you will effectively upskill and do the things that you can do. I think, you know, it it kind of will take the people out, go, oh, it's too hard, or or even putting things into place, like when you have... Um, whenever you do training, you know, you've got the... Was it language literacy, numeracy thingy, you know, doing a test to see maybe it's because they don't understand part of the language, maybe they're not understanding it for, I guess, alternative training to be able to support that, you know, that support worker as well. But I think in some ways it does, I feel like this industry is ever-evolving and there's always support workers that come into it because they, I think they kind of think, oh, this is so easy. I get to take a person to the movies. It's the best. And or it's to like, movie world. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to movie world. It's so cool. It's like, yeah, but then you've got this person who's so freaking heightened because, you know, Batman said hello. You know what I mean? It, it kind then, of weeds out and the... And then do they know how to bring yeah, that down? Yeah, like how do, we, how do we make that person to go... And because one thing I will say... As a mother, I've seen the domino effect where it's had where a provider has not understood how to support my son and then he will remember everything. It can be like six years ago that this happened and he'll be like, Mum, and he sees that person, he's like, Mum, we need to get out of here because I remember what that person had done. And so it, it's a, it can be really, it's a domino effect. Um, it can, as a parent, it can make you not trust a provider, but also as a participant, for my son, he's like, I don't want to go there, Mum. Like, what if the next place is exactly the same? And then I have to be like, no, they're amazing. Like, there's nothing wrong. Yeah. <laughs> they're awesome. <laughs> but I think you, it, it is right. If, if mm. we had to go into a qualification base, I wouldn't be in the industry. 
It took me a very long time, in fact, six, seven years after I finished high school to actually sort of go and recognise that I did have the skill set, did have the understanding to start my business. I had development late. I had lots of problems growing up as a kid. And this is why I love the Navigator program and some of the foundational supports because if they were more prevalent, it would have helped me because I wouldn't need NDIS supports, but I need foundational supports. I need understanding around how to do mm-hmm. school, how to work school around me, what my, how my brain kind of works in certain ways that most people don't even understand. So having that sort of framework would have, probably would have excluded me. Yeah. But I don't think it's about having the qualification. It's more having the requirements to understand. Go, go to lectures. Go find out more information. So the more that you can understand, like with um, Karen's son, uh, how, do I, how do I de-escalate once? Yeah. Um, if he's going into that red zone where, you know, you can, if you've ever seen an, with an autistic person, if they get to a certain point, there's a point there that you're like, oh, hell, the hell's breaking loose. <laughs> He's red zoning. It's, we're not going to get – it's not going to make any sense to whatever I say to him will not make sense. And there's no sort of classroom, yeah. like, or coursework or a test yeah. that's going to mean that you know how to de-escalate yeah. from that point. That comes with lived experience. But understanding to what to look for, how to sort of work with that person, some Also calming. how to identify – before it goes to the red zone, I've I've seen participants before with providers, and they tell me a story, and I'm like, okay. And um, it was a young man, and he actually um, he, he he escalated so hardcore that they, when they went into somewhere, he smothered shit all over himself. Now, when she told me the story, I was like, I could I could foresee where he had heightened, where he could have where they could have stopped it, and could have helped and supported that person instead of having that. For that poor person as well, that young man doing that, because he felt that was the only way that he could, he was non-verbal as well, to get that, what he needed out. Um, and my thing is, is the, the domino effect for those poor parents that they come home and then you're like, they cleaned them up as best as they could, but also like having to then go with that domino effect, it's, it's quite a, it, it's, it's quite profound um, an experience for participants, and that's why sometimes participants and then families kind of go, I don't know if I want support. And it takes them a while to then gain the support, and that's why they're a bit more intense than other ones. Yeah. So from that sort of key data advocate point, it's not about making it harder. Yeah. It's just ensuring that we have people that are seeking that information, are wanting to be in the industry, not looking at, at our family members, ourselves. Yeah. As a paycheck, yeah, because that, that's that's where we end up with these with particip- uh, staff on their phone on Facebook, bringing participants back to their house, mm. s- letting them sit in the in front of the TV and the aircon <laughs> while that staff member goes and gets ready for the house inspection tomorrow, which I've actually reported a friend back to their organisation because I they had they told me they did that. And I was like, get fucked. <laughs> I also have disowned that friend completely <laughs> for, for several other reasons. I but... you're like, they're my best friend. No, <laughs> but it, it, it's, it's a joke. Yeah. So a lot of staff take this as a joke. Hmm. And that's unfortunately why we end up in the situation that we have kind of come out from the Royal Commission from the last five years and as well as the last year from the NDIS review. 
There's, the question from the floor is, was there a code of practice? There's a code of conduct, yeah. which is meant to sort of... <laughs> yeah. Oh, so great. So, so, so great. is great. Um, look, it's a code of practice <laughs> and whatever the providers put in place. But that's, yeah. that's kind of the problem is it comes from the providers and providers don't have time to handhold staff and make sure that we're doing it. We employ people expecting them to be able to do the job competently and but that's the, I think that's the scary yeah. thing, though, because that's when, you know, as we see in the news of the, the news articles of the things that people do, um, it's, and it's scary, I think, as well, if you think about it, that, that's a human. You're choosing to not do the right thing and it can neg negatively make impacts on not just the participant. I always think to myself, the family, all the providers and the, the outer providers, like your allied health, that all support that participant. Like, it gives me goosebumps because I just think to myself that is, it can be such a scary thing for that domino effect to happen. <laughs> Back to the training. I just wanted to suggest as well that, like, having that minimum baseline training, I think would actually make the job go better. And, yes. then, and then you would actually increase, like, the retention of good support workers. Like, as a behaviour practitioner, right, like, often what I feel like I'm doing a really mm, surface-level job. Hey, don't yell at the participants, yeah? Um, and maybe, like, <laughs> treat them like an adult in their own home because they yeah. are an adult in their own home. Yeah. And all of a sudden, like, everything kind of gets better and I'm not needed anymore and that's great. Like... Um, you know, and of course, sometimes things are more complex, and a lot of the time we work with really skilled support workers who, you know, we need to have more really specific strategies, but it is kind of upsetting how often the, the, the training really is this really basic training. It's a waste of my time. Yep. Um, it's a waste of the participants' funding. It's yep. a waste of the, the organisation's time, and they're hesitant to do too many trainings when you have to yep. pay an entire staff team. So yep. I would suggest that that mandatory training might actually improve the, like, work. Yeah, I uh, totally feel that from a behavioural yeah. support point of view. <laughs> awesome. I think that's question answered. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Asked and answered. Okay. We've got a good one for all three of us. Who is making the final say when it comes to funding being approved or denied when it comes to services? So, essentially, that is the NDIA planner at the NDIA, even if you see an LAC, the participant will see an L, might see an LAC if they're low level and they might see a planner at the NDIA if they're more complex. Anyway, either way, the plan goes to a delegate to be approved. So all of the information that they've gathered at that meeting, then, and all of their notes of the person who you spoke to, then heads along the chain to the next person. Part of the issue is that the person that speaks to you then has too much compassion for you and that's why they can't make the final decision and that's why it has to go to someone who's never met you and never spoken to you and will only read reports written about you. Um, so that is who is making the final decision. Who makes the decision on which services to use um, is down to the participant when they're in consultation with their 
people around them and hopefully one of those is a support coordinator who would support that with giving them choice and control. Um, so sometimes they will deny, say, the one I get a lot is if someone has autism, they don't, they often deny physio. Um, and they go, well, autism is neurological, you don't need physio, which we all know is bullshit. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so that's sometimes also included. So that's why we need amazing, robust, really harsh reports by all of you lovely, amazing people so that when we pass it along to the NDIA, the person at the end of the line who gets to read it all will actually approve everything we're requesting. And if anyone ever tells you that your report, it doesn't matter because your reports never get read, do not listen to that person <laughs> because even if your reports don't get read right that second by that planner, it, if we have to escalate, it will be read by the people at AAT. So make sure your report is on point. Very helpful. Most box. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the short answer is yeah. a person in an ivory tower with no real understanding other than what they're given in front of them on a piece of paper, and the <laughs> participant gets to decide what supports get in place, and let's hope to God that they've got some good supports we, around. We, them. we hold our fingers and cross them. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we do. <laughs> um, okay. There was a couple of questions along these lines, so I'm going to kind of combine them into, it's about scheme sustainability, which I cringe <laughs> at because it makes me angry. <laughs> A first world country should have disability supports and they should mm. just pay for them. The money that all of our tax dollars go into the government to then disperse evenly across the population for lots of different things that not all of us necessarily use. And also the money that goes into the NDIS is not going into a black hole no. of nothingness. It goes to pay for us. It goes to pay human beings and as human beings, we then pay our taxes and we buy things and we put more money back into the economy than the NDIS puts in. So they should just fund it and scheme sustainability should be shoved up. <laughs> Where the sun don't shine. It, it comes down to budget. So when we're starting to look at budget, it sits, it's, we're sitting, NDIS is starting to sit pretty much at the same rate as our defence spending. And our defence spending is quite large, with good reason. Um, so is NDIS funding, with good reason. Yeah. The concern is, is that the way that it is running and projected, we just, we're going to start losing our, our AAA rating, essentially, 
if it, this if the trajectory keeps on going, Australia is going to essentially lose the way the the benefits we get from having a AAA rating as a country. Um, for a little bit more context around that, it's where we buy uh, borrow money from the World Bank, and it, it impacts what that repayment is going to be. So. Sustainability within the scheme, as Hannah was saying, is really important to ensure that a, there's money for people with a disability to get the services that they need. Does it all need to be funded in the same manner? Not necessarily. And ultimately, this is an, any of the accountants listening or in, in the room will know this is all about the, the beans on an abacus mm. somewhere try, just trying to level up. So, budget. where mm. the um, NDIS review is bringing in foundational supports and all of this. Ultimately, where people are scared they're going to lose money, it's not changing the money at the end of the day. It's moving it to a different budget line yeah. item. So for providers, it might rather than it being an operational budget, it might be some sort of other budget that we look at in, in that kind of context. From a governmental point of view, it's uh, this department gets this funding, this department gets this funding. You're just going to move some money around is ultimately the problem. And the government is wanting to shove it down to states and vice versa, and it's a big argument. What it, the sustainability argument fails to recognise each time it's brought up is the benefit to the economy. Hmm. All of us in this room right now would be in different jobs if the NDIs didn't, didn't happen. Yeah. We would be, people would be losing out on supports. We wouldn't have as many providers in the room. We wouldn't have as much supports on the market. It'd be a different space. But this is sort of what's becoming, and that, that's brought in thousands of, hundreds of thousands of jobs. We've got lots of, lots of sole traders, small businesses, mum and dads being able to provide money to send their kids to school, being able to go to doctors, mm. being able to access mainstream services, which all goes into funding our healthcare system, our educational system, not that the government's spending any of this money very well. But the <laughs> idea, that's the kind of the idea. And the, the benefits to the economy is missed out every time we have this sustainability conversation, quote, quote inverted commas there. Um, <laughs> and that's a real sad thing. So whenever we hear that, that sustainability, it needs to be what's actually the benefit? Because if you look at what the benefit is versus what the expenditure is, it starts to balance out and the actual dollar is really not the same. Yeah. yeah. I agree too because I just think, I think it's just, yeah, some person kind of in an ivory tower just kind of going, oh, we need to, you know, they were talking about, you know, oh, there, there's too many people getting diagnosed with autism oh, I didn't realise there was going to be as many people being diagnosed with autism and then they're like, oh, then more people are going to then go on to the NDIS. But I always think as well, like, I understand that, you know, money makes the world go around, I guess, in some ways and, yeah, you know, and what you were saying, Sam, you know, it, it does all kind of, it all kind of comes together. Like, it all comes full circle. I just think to myself, think, can we think more on the positive effects that it actually makes on the people? You see people that who didn't have, you know, NDIS support and, you know, and it's like I've seen it with, you know, people who are much older and that they're now moving out of home and their parents are like in their 60s and 70s, that they can't support, they want to support but they want to, but then they're also what I've seen is that parents are going, I can actually be like not mum and like, you know, you're always going to be mum and dad but you're like, I can, I can be me, I can actually do like 
We don't have to think. Can and breathe. We can breathe. Oh, that's a weird feeling. Um, <laughs> you know, like, because it, it can be if you if you don't live what other people live in, it's a very different world, um, and you're always thinking ten steps before. You know, when you work with other, when you have other children who don't have a disability, you can just be like a bit more. I don't, it's just different. It's just a different world. It really is. But I just think sometimes they should think maybe not so much with their head but also, like, look at the the positives and actually talk to the people as well. Like, they've talked to a certain amount of people but it's, like, really in the big scheme of things it's quite small. So actually, think like, talk to more people and get more, like, of the instead of it all just being negative, negative, let's think about more positivity. Yeah. The last thing on that sustainability point is also clamping down on fraud. Yes. Participant plan gouging and that overspending as well. Yeah. So it's not just sort of all around the, the, the negatives, it's well, yeah. all the positives or the, the balance and red tape and that side of thing. It's about focusing on ensuring that the money that us as taxpayers is spent appropriately yeah. and providers need to really start thinking about A, um, since we've got the change to the code of conduct around price gouging, essentially, so yes. making sure that there's no double payment, so NDIS no has a, ex, ex, more expensive than someone that doesn't have NDIS. That, that's just a rort. Um, yeah. Going out and finding participants that have huge budgets so you can do 11 hours a day, that's not okay. If the participant needs 11 hours a day and it's justified and that's why they've been given that yeah. plan, then by all means, you should definitely be doing that. But I unfortunately have been seeing uh, providers going, we will only support you for six hours a day because that's what we're told our staff. Yeah. And then a participant might only need an hour in, in home care and medication management because they're on a positive behavioural support plan for medication, but you're actually forcing them to spend six hours a day yeah. every day just so they can get medication, even if they don't need support for the rest yeah. of the five hours. But it has been good in regards to, I mean, I, I, I think it was me and Sam were talking about it, it was that, like, you know, two or three years ago, the, I called it the naughty list, which is, you know, the banned list. Um, it was, like, maybe one, maybe two-page document. If you go have a look on it, it's quite a good read, actually, um, to see all, like, the people that are actually on the banned list. And it's good because it means that, you know, yes, there's the negativity about the, what bad people are doing, but they're getting they're getting in trouble for the, you know, it, it does take a little bit longer, but they are still getting in trouble and a lot of people are, you know, uh, being banned, which is really good because it's like at the end of the day that's someone's life that you're pretty much screwing around with um, and it's a trickle-down effect and it's just not nice. Cool. All right, next awesome question. <laughs> So, in the... <laughs> it's got to be recorded, Jason. <laughs> um, thanks for that question. It's a brilliant question. Um, it's just, you guys know, you guys don't. I am currently doing a master's in um, intersectionality, and one of the... I'm doing um, my research for my thesis, which is on disability here in Australia. And for that question, for every dollar the NDIS spend, $2.25 return to the government. So it's actually good for Australia. Yep. So I don't understand the, the issue with um, <laughs> budget and, and it's ridiculous. Hmm. It's government bureaucracy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's they just essentially want more. the argument. They just want more, it's fine. 
Thanks, Jason. That was really handy. Thank you. Um, so we had a really good question posed to me before we got started. In the real world, pricing of what we do is <laughs> based on value. And now in the NDIS, we have a the PAPL. And most people charge at the maximum. But not all of them provide that value for money. And so should probably, if there wasn't a maximum, should be, you know, a little bit less. How do we bring a little bit more value to what we do in the NDIS if we're going to charge at the maximum? I think, I'm going to say something, I think you should, as every provider, I always say think outside the box, but I actually kind of stopped thinking about that because I don't think there's a box there anymore. But for other people who don't think like I do, think outside the box. Like if you are going to, just think about it, if you go to a different industry and you go to, say you go to a cafe and you're like, you were like blown away by the customer service and everything that they did and they just did those little touches that made you feel like, oh, that's really cool. Like, I'll go back there. But you go to another cafe and you're like, well, you get yelled at, you get abused, they abuse the staff, you get shit food. It's just not a good experience. It's the same within the NDIS. Give, give a bit more. Like, I'm always saying to providers, give more, don't take. If you, you know, don't ever be that provider that goes as I've heard stories, horror stories, um, you know, providers go to support coordinators, hey, I do this, can I have a client? Yep, that happened. Um, <laughs> it didn't end time. well for that provider. <laughs> um, in, in that respect that, you, it, to me, I think it's like go that extra mile. People, will, it's like anything, you will pay more. I will always... Uh, you know, if I look at this type of supports that my son gets, if they, they go that extra mile, they're doing little things that help. I don't mind paying that. But if you're doing a shit job, well, I will probably more likely move on. But it, to me, I think it's about giving more value. Think about what you can do that will just be that, that extra bit. I think, it's, I think it's such a good thing rather than being... Never be stock set and boring. You'll never get anywhere. And also that you can charge less. Yes. It is only a maximum. It it's is a not choice. a minimum. And I think people forget this. And there's plenty of really great allied health people who do charge a little bit less. And so they should. Not support coordinators because oh, yeah. we haven't had a price increase in four <laughs> years. <laughs> So not us. <laughs> You're like, no go on that one. <laughs> We're $100.14. Yeah. And that 14 cents we earn. <laughs> so in corporate world, there's a term called value proposition or your value prop. So it's really looking at, as both Karen and Harriet said, is what are you bringing to the table? Yeah. Why are you bringing it? In, when you think about your favourite hair salon, they do something different that nobody else does. They <laughs> throw in free, free blow waves or dye. your hair up. Yeah. Or you get, <laughs> like, I go to a barber, because a, a specific barber, because I get a bevy when I walk in the door. <laughs> like, th that was their... It's the little it's, things it's the, in life, yeah, yeah. It's the same price as the one next door, but they do things yeah. differently than the one next door. So I choose 
provide option A rather than yeah. B, where the value in terms of how the the money and the allocation is uh, for providers and anyone that wants to get a little bit more understanding in depth, they have on the pricing arrangements page the cost model. And that sort of breaks down how they came to the idea of the price that's in the max. There are a lot of providers... For example, if you're a mum and dad uh, plan manager and you have 50 participants, you're making sweet fuck all, realistically, once you start bringing it out. If you're a big plan manager, it starts to, and you've got the staff and you've got the training and you've got systems in place that do help you with your job and you've got smart sort of tech that helps you, it becomes a lot cheaper and your, and your profit sort of things and then you start reinvesting your staff and you make like, you give your staff a lot because then they start staying mm. and there's lots of companies um, that do this really well. There's also lots of companies that don't. And it's kind of about your internal values and beliefs and yeah. how much you value your staff. Because at the end of the day, if you don't have good values, you don't want to be in that company. Yeah. If you've got managers that micromanage, undermanage, or like, what's the word? Under, undermine other staff. Yeah. You don't want to be in that It's a toxic environment. You don't want to be there. But if you're, on the other hand, if you've got really good managers, you've got really good leadership, you've got some sort of structure and you've got people that really care and want to make sure that things are going and that there's no real hurdle that can't be overcome, you want to stay there. You want to perform to your max. You want to be out there bringing in people, trying to get people on. And the people that you start talking to feel that from you, feel that from your engagement managers. I had a provider ask me last year whether or not an engagement manager is worth it. I'm on two sides of the fence here. One, I look at it as I don't think business development is done really well because at the end of the day, it's participants that we need a target. Mm. But where you have um, engagement managers or sales sort of people that do really love what they're doing, participants feel it. Yeah. And they like, okay, cool, we like this. If you've, and then it sort of flows on when you get your next intake person. And if that intake person's got that same sort of vibe, you start bringing it in. And then you have retention if your rest of your, your day-to-day facing staff are the same. And that all comes from your leadership, why you're doing it, and why you want to keep your staff in the industry. And then you can start looking at going, okay, well, we're putting these sort of things in place. We're making it easier for us to do this job. Let's start investing our staff. Maybe we have gimmicks or other things yeah. where we put on free options, where we have team up with other providers and we do a big huda or something like that that we don't charge. There's lots of different things that you can add for your value prop. Yeah. It's about creating a better culture instead of it being we have to... I always say, and I talked about it a lot last year, don't be a cookie-cutter kind of version. Yes, we have a price guide. Yes, that's what it is. But you don't... It's your choice especially if it's your business or even if you work for a business, you have the choice to be there or not to be there. You have a choice to create the experience and not just... It's, it's, when you become an NDIS provider, it's not just about the participants. Yes, it is. I'll, I'll, that's the main thing, yes. But it's also about having that right stuff, having that when you build a business, you want to have... We want people to believe in what you do and kind of follow you and go, oh, that's really cool. I want to do that. Um, in one of you said um, with Hannah about the, you know, looking, you know, you don't have to go for the highest amount. Um, it's about thinking about, okay, well, if that participant only has, can only, you know, instead of seeing a person, you know, I don't know, 
uh, every fortnight, but if you charged a bit less and, and they, you could see that in that beginning, they maybe really need that support, have a look and see, can I viably look at doing it a bit less? And making that conscious choice to go, instead of it being like, well, that's, we see it, some providers go, oh, that, that takes my profit, I'm not going to do that. But it's about, I think, the really good providers that are out there that I meet and they think you can just tell that they're just all about the people and how can, and, and all the people, it makes you feel like I do that kind of like, oh, you're so exciting, like I get really excited. But when people are like, it's all about cash and it's all about money, I'll run for the hills. I just, I don't want to be a part of that. You are not in it for the right reasons. And also you won't last long, so. We do have to start wrapping up. This is like our longest podcast <laughs> episode ever. Sorry, Ellie. Um, so I'm just going to really quickly ask us a quick question about pace. Have either of you two interacted with pace yet? No. Because if you haven't, I have and I'll talk about it. <laughs> I have seen it. I have also seen the pain that it's yes. causing independent support coordinators try and get on the damn thing because they're saying that it's meant to be easy. Yes, I've heard that it's not an easy thing. I've not foreseen it in my own sight, but I've seen that people have gone pretty much at shit um, <laughs> and it's just getting shitter. Um, so <laughs> that's pretty much what I've heard. <laughs> so the PACE plans are horrific the new look of how plans look um and it's more complicated than it was before and i hate it <laughs> and what i was so hoping was that we'd get something less complicated and it's more complicated and it's made more complicated too because what they've got an extra column where previously it would say, this is the support, this is how much it is, there was two columns. Now there's a third one, and in the middle on the third one, people, it has when the next lot of money will drop. So some people are only getting an amount of money, say, every three months, and then they drop the next amount, even though you're funded you know, $50,000 in core, they'll say three months and then you drop, they drop the next one. The participants I have, I've seen a two-year or I think another one was a three-year and they were dropping every 12 months. But I do know I've seen others that are dropped every six months, which makes it harder because then... We've got to go, okay, you've only got this much for six months before the next will drop. And if we miss time your funding and you run out of funding before the next drop, it's too bad. And you've just got to wait for the next drop. And I think this is going to put panic onto um, plan managers Two, because everybody is going to be screaming at their plan manager going, why can't I access funding? And their plan manager is going to go, it's not my fault. Hmm. I can't do anything about it. Um, so the other problem that I have seen is I have seen 
uh, well, parents who have two participants, um, one child who is on PACE, one child who is on PRODA, all of a sudden they can't see the child's one that is on PRODA because they've been able to get into PACE. So the, <laughs> the system is a bit fucked. <laughs> um, and I think they have to rethink it because I was so hoping, yeah, like I said, they would make it easier, not harder. So the other, other thing that makes life harder is that with the capital budget being, I mean, it always was where your big ticket items went. So, for example, I have a participant recently who got um, approved for a new wheelchair, but because it doesn't specifically say that wheelchair in the plan anymore, it just says you've been approved something that costs $26,000, the plan manager is not approving it. And then the information, we get a, for this participant, I got a budget breakdown from the LAC, and in the budget breakdown, it said the wheelchair was funded. But because the plan manager can't see it on their end, because it's not, in, not telling them in pace, it's not telling them on the plan, they're not, they're not allowing that money to be approved for that. And I'm trying to tell them, yes, it was approved. But so um, I personally, as a support coordinator, am hating pace at the moment. <laughs> And it is making it more complicated and more problematic for people to access mm. things like wheelchairs that we so desperately need. And I've got two participants currently trying, like, approved for wheelchairs and having this same problem at the moment. Um, so to wrap up, I want to thank you all so much for coming and being a part of our first live episode. Um, please feel free to stick around and talk to each other um, and have some food and there's some postcards for you to take. Um, and if you want to take extras, because you might have other people you want to hand them out to at your office, please take extras. We've got plenty, um, but thank you so much. Bye. Thank you. Huzzah. <laughs> thank you for listening. Please share with people you know. Until next time, as the Green Brothers say, don't forget to be awesome.